Well, we invite any children here, uh, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church, which they can find through the door over here by the piano. And with the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. It's on page 1030 if you're using a pew Bible. I am tempted to preach with that sombrero on, but... But I'm a classy guy. So, uh, Luke chapter 11, uh, page 1030. I hope you enjoyed the ministry of Jim Critchlow last Sunday. I, was, uh, I just got to talk to him on the phone. He seemed like a great guy. I, I wish I could have uh, been here to hear him open God's Word. Luke chapter 11. And uh, today we're studying verses 29 to 36. Let me read the text. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it, except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For, this, uh, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand so that those who came in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But when they're bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark... It will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. I think today's text is a really interesting text. And I find it fascinating because um, it's different from the kind of text that we usually study in that I think the types of passages we usually look at are more geared toward Christians and toward believers. Uh, You know, for instance, a couple Sundays ago we studied prayer, right? We looked at the Lord's Prayer and then we looked at Ask, Seek, and Knock. Uh, but that kind of presumes that there is a God who actually hears and answers prayer. And so it's kind of presuming a certain level of belief as we go into the text. But I think today's text is interesting because it's, it's sort of more geared toward people who don't believe, who have problems with believing. Um, and may, maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you are somebody like that. And so although it's not exclusively for unbelievers, I think it's kind of primarily geared in that direction. Uh, you know, it's for the kind of people who are skeptics and doubters, who are always saying, prove it. That's their mantra. Prove it. I need evidence. I need reasons. Uh, perhaps some of you are trained in the hard sciences. You are trained in the scientific method, where you see a problem, so you uh, form a hypothesis, you concoct an experiment, you conduct the experiment, which has to be repeatable and observable, You observe the outcome, and therefore you test the hypothesis to see whether or not your hypothesis was correct. 
so, so that there's a, a certain empiricism. And then we come to things of faith and we say, well, if there is a God, if there is a, a heaven to be gained and a hell to be avoided, if, there is, uh, if Jesus is the Son of God, well, give me some evidence. I need things I can see. I, I need proofs. I need logic in order to believe. Prove it. And what I think is so interesting about this story is that Jesus is confronted with some people who are asking for a miraculous sign. They're asking for proof. They want some evidence. They need some more tangible things in order to believe. And so that's kind of what this text is is about. Um, So maybe you might want to call it Meditations on Unbelief. That's where this sermon is kind of going. And specifically, I want to look at three things that Jesus, I think, addresses in this text. The first is to look at the dynamics of unbelief. How does it work? Because I think that unbelief, whether way back then or today, has a certain uh, sort of motion to it. It happens in a certain kind of way. And what's interesting, of course, is that way back then, uh, the people were supernaturalists. They believed in God. They believed in Satan and in devils and in the afterlife. And yet they didn't believe in Christ. And today, people tend to be more materialists and naturalists who don't believe. And yet, even though there are these very different kinds of worldviews, there's still unbelief, and I think it still works the same way. So we're going to look at the dynamics of unbelief. And then second, I want to look at the dangers of unbelief, the risks inherent in it. And then finally, we're going to look at uh, the source of unbelief. Where does it come from? Does unbelief really arise primarily from an absence of data? Or is there something else going on here? So let's look at this text uh, together. And first of all, I'm going to look at the dynamics of unbelief. How does it work? And look at verse 29. It says, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he starts out by uh, castigating the people in front of him. This is a wicked generation, and not in the Massachusetts sense of wicked. Okay? And sort of in the biblical sense of evil. That this is a bad generation. And so here's all these crowds coming to Jesus, and he instantly starts insulting them, which seems kind of strange. You'd think he would be happy that crowds were coming to him. But he turns around and he's like, you're a bunch of wicked people. You want a sign, you're not going to get a sign. What's he talking about? Why is he just coming out against the people like this? Well, you have to really understand this passage in context. So turn back to Luke chapter 11, verse 14. This is the passage I didn't preach on last Sunday because I was gone. Um, and that Jim didn't preach on either. So, but we'll look at it a little bit. Chapter 11, verse 14. Here's the context. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. So notice three things happen. Verse 14, Jesus casts a demon out of some guy who couldn't talk and now he can talk and everyone's amazed. They probably knew the guy and now, wow, he can talk. The second thing that happens is that some people say, well, it must have been by satanic power that you were able to drive out the demon. And the third thing that happens is other people say, give us a sign. We want a sign from God. So you have the miracle, then you have two responses. And then what happens is, if you look at verses 17 to 28... That's Jesus' response to the first objection. 
So that's where Jesus deals with the whole thing about it must be by diabolical power that you are driving out demons. And he's like, look, that's ridiculous. Why would Satan destroy Satan? It doesn't make any sense. And then when you come to our verse, verse 29, I think he's responding to the second thing, which was in verse 16, namely that uh, people have asked for a sign from heaven. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it, how this works? I mean, you put the whole thing together. Jesus casts this demon out of this guy. Poor guy hasn't talked for who knows how long. Suddenly he can talk. Everyone's amazed. And and now they're saying, well, we want a sign from heaven. Okay, uh, how about another exorcism? Wasn't that a sign? Wasn't that pretty amazing? Yeah, yeah, but there could be an explanation for that. I could explain that a different way. Maybe it's by satanic power that you drove out the demon. So that one really doesn't count. We need another one. Give us yet another kind of sign. And I think that's where the second group comes in. And so what I think was interesting here, you sort of put it all together, and, and you have a snapshot of unbelief. That's the dynamic of unbelief. Specifically, unbelief can always find another reason not to believe. Skepticism can always rationalize another reason to be skeptical. Skepticism's easy. Doubt is easy. You can always doubt something. And so it's like, well, it could have been that, but there could be another explanation. Well, that's maybe, but what about this? And because I have a reason to doubt, therefore, I can't believe it at all. And so I think there's this kind of um, uh, crutchiness. You know, people say belief is a crutch. I think unbelief is a crutch. Because you don't necessarily have to really do the work. You can just raise one objection and be like, well, there's a problem with that. I can't believe that. Problem with it. Well, you know... What, what more do you want? You know, what if I did an exorcism right here? I, I really don't want to do that. But I mean, what if a person was deranged and we say, like, wow, that person's really sick and it turned out that they weren't mentally ill, it was something else. What if they really were possessed? And what if, the, you know, in the middle of the service I kind of shut the service down and I just said, hey, everybody pray and we prayed over the person and then they were cured and then they were normal. And what if it happened like right here? You know, I, I know people who've had first-hand experiences with that today. So like... You know, what if you saw that? Well, you still wouldn't necessarily believe. Because you could say, well, you know, it could have been a, a mental illness and not a demon. And, and it could be that that person is really going to be hurting a, a week from now when they still have their mental illness and they thought it was a demon. And so that really was bad. Uh, or you could say, well, what if it was a plant in the audience? It could have been a plant. Well, it could have been. I don't know for sure, so I, I can't believe it. Well, you know, you can always find a reason to doubt. If you want to be a skeptic, it's really rather easy because there's always a reason to be skeptical. Uh, you know, what about the skepticism about people who come to Jesus and claim to be born again? I, I think that's one of the greatest miracles that I see as a pastor on a regular basis is people who didn't know Christ and then they come to Christ and their lives are changed and it's so dramatic that they have to use biblical language like, I was born again. That's how big of a change it was. Uh, I was listening to this radio show as I was driving down 228 about a year ago it was, you know, I turned on the radio, it was talk radio, which usually drives me crazy pretty fast, but I was listening to it, and uh, this guy was on there talking about the born-again phenomena. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And his whole thing was like, what's, what's this all about? Why, what is this whole born-again thing? And his theory was, this was his theory, that the reason people claim to be born again is that they've gone through some crisis in their life, in a fit of desperation they've called upon God, and they've come through the crisis, and so they assume that that was God who helped them, and then it, th- that sort of crisis psychology created this sense that I'm now a believer. And so that was his explanation. It's because people get diseases or people 
you know, get in a car wreck and live, and then they say, oh, there must be a God, and then I'm born again. So this girl calls in, and she says, yeah, I'm a born-again Christian. And he says, okay, how does it happen? She said, well, I was, you know, I'm in my 20s. She's a young 20-something. She's in college. She says, I used to be an atheist, and I used to be a liberal. You know, in every far-out sense of the word, I was just so far out there. And she says, I had this friend who was a Christian, and, and this guy, and, and he would challenge me. You know, not in a bad way, but we'd just have conversations about faith. And he'd say, yeah, well, what about this? Have you thought about that? And then he gave me some books to read, and I started thinking about it. And I started looking into the claims, and, you know, something happened, and I, now I believe, and I became a Christian. And, and, and the guy on the other end, the talk show host, was like, wait a minute. He's like, but, you know, what else happened? I mean, didn't you, like, get a, have a bad breakup with your boyfriend? Or didn't one of your parents get a disease? No, no. Did you get fired from your job? Did you flunk out of college? No. I just, I just believe. And the guy's like, what? You know, and finally, this is what the talk show host said. I kid you not. He said, you know what? I don't believe you. <laughs> he, he said to her on, on the radio, you know, I guess you say whatever on the radio. He, he said, you're either forgetting something that happened or you're lying to me. And so I just, I don't believe it. Next caller. I was like, That's the dynamic of unbelief. You know, if you want to be a hardcore skeptic, what if an angel appeared in the room? You know, you, know, you could still doubt it. You'd be like, well, those Baptists, they got PowerPoint, you know. Uh, <laughs> could be some kind of trick. Maybe I'm having a hallucination. I mean, you could always, there's always another explanation. What if it's an alien? What if it's not really an angel? I mean, you, could, you can always come up with a reason to doubt. And so I guess what I'm saying is beware of the infinite regress of unbelief. Where all you do is you say, I don't believe, and you have a couple bumper sticker lines you throw out there like, well, you know, those Christians are hypocrites, and how come religion started so many wars, and what about the Crusades? You've got three or four of those in your pocket, boop, 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 and you're safe. Because you can always doubt, you throw out a couple one-liners, and it's like, well, I've dealt with that. Hmm. I think that's intellectually dishonest. And I guess what I want to do is just challenge us not to fall into the infinite cycle of unbelief where you can always be a skeptic and you can always write things off and not really have to deal with them. And, and what the thing is that skepticism appears on the outside to, to be sophisticated and intellectual, but I think it's really a kind of crutch in many cases. It's kind of just the opposite. It's what believers are accused of having as a crutch. I think unbelief is a crutch because you don't actually have to deal with some of these huge issues and really wrestle with them. She's going, I don't know, there's a reason to doubt, so blah, blah. And it's done. And Jesus realizes that. And that's why he, he challenges them here. And by the way, can I just say that if anyone here really is a doubter or a skeptic, and, uh, and you'd like to just talk, I would love to go out to lunch with you. Presuming you're buying, of course, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to go out that bad, but you know, if, if there's a meal involved, I'm always open. But you know, seriously, I, seriously, I would love to go out with you, not to have an argument, not to scream at each other, not to yell arguments at each other, but just to talk. I would just love to hear why you don't believe. And I would love to share why I do believe. You know, let's have a conversation. You know, like you can't have, it seems like, anymore today. You listen to talk radio or the O'Reilly show and people are just screaming at each other. You know, it's not real conversations. I would love to have a real conversation. And if you really have intellectual questions, take Pastor Seth out to lunch. Because he, you know, he's like so much smarter and intellectually oriented than I am. And, you know, if you really feel like you're an intellectual and you, you want to go for it, you know, go for the, the main attraction and uh, <laughs> take Seth out to lunch. And just say, this is why I have problems. ba 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 And just hear what he has to say. You know, start a conversation. Talk about it. I guess that's what I'm challenging him to do, is really engage rather than just, oh, I don't know. There's a doubt. There's a reason. Uh-uh. And, and I think 
we need to engage in these kinds of things. And the reason is because of the second point. Because of the dangers of unbelief. Because there's so much at stake. The dynamic of unbelief is dangerous because there's so much at stake. What if it's true? There's a lot at stake. What if God is real? Then we're facing a a judge whom we are rejecting. And that's what Jesus is really getting at in verses 29 to 32. Going back to our main story. Having sort of exposed the dynamic of unbelief, Jesus decides he's not going to go down that road. He's not going to offer them yet another sign. He realizes that's like chasing a mirage in the desert. That's like trying to get to the end of the rainbow and get the pot of gold. If you just keep giving another proof and another proof, he realizes there's something happening here. So he takes a different tack. And with the authority of Christ, he, he pronounces a kind of a judgment. And notice the judgment has two forms. Uh, verse 29 is one form of this judgment, this danger, this, this risk that you're running in unbelief. It says, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So I think there's a risk in unbelief that if it's true, God might judge us, not just in the future, but in the present, by denying evidence. You ever thought of that? You know, if there's not enough proof for you to believe, there could be two reasons. One is because there's no God. The other reason is there is a God, but He doesn't feel like giving you any more information. What makes us think that God owes us an answer to every little quibbly, squibbly question we have? Maybe God says, you know what, you got enough, I'm done. That's a scary thought. And so I think there's a danger. If God is real, there's a danger that he may not choose to give you any more evidence because he's, he's tired of you being the eternal skeptic and kind of hiding in your little fortress of skepticism. And so God says, no more signs, like on Seinfeld, the soup Nazi. No sign for you, Right? No soup for you. No sign, except you get one sign. The sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, put a bookmark here. Uh, Flip back to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew's account of the same incident. It's on page 967. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what is that? Verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So going back to Luke 11, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, I think it's the resurrection. It's the fact that just as Jonah the prophet went into that fish for three days and then got spat out and then went and preached the Ninevites and they all repented. So Jesus says there will come a time when the Son of Man will be put in the earth for three days. He'll be buried and then He'll rise. The greatest evidence, the greatest old-time sign that God has given is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If Jesus is raised, then it's all true. And if Jesus is not raised, then it's all hooey. He might as well do something else. It, all, it really hinges on this, uh, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And Jesus says, this is the sign. Even to those people that I say, no sign, they get one sign, my resurrection. Have you ever thought about the resurrection? This is big. I mean, this is one of those issues that has turned a lot of skeptics into believers. A guy named Morrison wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? 
He was a skeptic who looked at the resurrection, became a believer. Maybe some of you heard of Lee Strobel's. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith. He used to be a hard-nosed Chicago journalist whose wife became a Christian. He's like, oh my goodness, she's joined a cult. So he investigated it in order to disprove Christianity, and he became a Christian as a result of it. Uh, same for um, Josh McDowell. He became a Christian through an investigation of the evidence, even though he was trying to disprove it. You know, the, and the resurrection is one of those key pieces of evidences for the faith. And maybe you're thinking, like, the resurrection? How can that be an evidence? I mean, I wasn't there. You weren't there. No one saw it who's alive today if it did happen. How can that be a proof? Well, think about it. Think about it. Think about the facts of the resurrection. Fact number one. From the earliest days of the Christian faith, the message of Christians has been, He is risen. That wasn't a message that evolved 400 years later that was something that even liberal scholars agree with this, that the earliest records we have that we can tell, the earliest strata of Christian tradition is He is risen. Now, not only is that the earliest message, but notice that that message, He is risen, happened not a thousand miles away across the Roman Empire, but in the very city where it all went down, in Jerusalem. So immediately after Jesus is crucified, in the very same town that it happened, these guys start going around saying, He is risen, He is risen, He is risen. Fact number three, after that message is proclaimed, what happens? The church explodes. Thousands come to Christ. And not only that, but it's like a virus. It takes over the whole Roman Empire. Until just a couple centuries later, you got your first Roman emperor, Constantine, and Christianity just goes like crazy. How did it start there? I mean, I can understand if it started someplace else and there was some huckster who tricked people and was really eloquent. But here you just have regular common fisherman type guys in the same place it happened, preaching he has risen, and thousands believe. How can that happen? And I leave it to you. You have to come up with a scenario to explain those data points. So think about it. It's, it's amazing. And there it is, the resurrection. Wrestle with it. Chew on it. If Christ is raised, then it's true. And if he's not raised, it's all hooey and I'm really in a long line, wrong line of work. Um, and so, that's the one sign. But there is a danger, going back to the dangers of, let's get back on track here, the dangers of unbelief. The first danger is that God may not give us a sign besides the sign of Jonah. And of course, the greater danger is that someday, at the judgment day, we will be condemned. If it's true and there is a judgment day, then we're running a great risk in not believing. Uh, look at verse uh, 31. Jesus looks to the future. He says in verse 31, The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. If it's true, then there's a lot at stake. And so Jesus tells these two stories. You know these two stories? The queen of the south is, is the queen of Sheba. It's King Solomon. King Solomon was the king. The queen of Sheba heard about his wisdom and wealth. And so she made this big journey with her entourage. And they went up to Jerusalem to see King Solomon. And she tested him with all kinds of riddles and questions. And he could answer them all. And she was so impressed, she entered into a trade agreement with uh, Israel, and there was sort of a bond that was formed. She said, oh yes, you really do have great wisdom. You are awesome, whatever. And so that, that's one story. The other story is Jonah and the Ninevites. He went to these Ninevites who were Assyrian, pagan, idolatrous, bloodthirsty people, and he preached to them and they repented. And so Jesus is really sticking to two of these guys. He says, look, even these pagan, unbelieving, heathen, idolatrous people, they're going to stand up at the judgment and stand against you and condemn you. And so it is that God has sent people to you. 
uh, you know, I'm here talking. You've probably heard other preachers. God sent your family members. Maybe you have a spouse or your parents or your kids who, I'm praying for you, trying to tell you the truth, and you just won't listen. You block it out because you don't want to listen to them. Uh, you know, God's sending messengers into your life. There's books you can read. If you really want to wrestle with good arguments for Christianity, I can give you books and books and books. Have you read some? Have you read anything? Have you read the Bible? Or are you just kind of in the, the iron fortress of solitude of unbelief? Nope, there's a reason to doubt, so I can't believe anything. Uh, what's gonna be, what would it be like on the judgment day if this was true? Will you be able to endure it if your own children on that day stand with Christ and not with you? And they stand with Christ on the judgment day and testify against you in God's court and say, I testify that I told on numerous occasions, and they didn't listen. And your spouse gets up and says, I testify against my own spouse. Your own beloved family members testifying against you. Can you endure that? Are you really ready to risk that? Based upon, I don't know, it's just a bunch of hooey. Have you really thought about it? The uh, famous mathematician Blaise Pascal, who was one of many, 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 many scientists who believed in God, uh, Blaise Pascal uh, came up with something that's known as Pascal's Wager. Have you heard of Pascal's Wager? He, he said if you had to make a bet between believing in Christianity or believing in atheism, uh, which one would you choose? What's the safer wager? And so he said, what if you believe in Christianity and it turns out all to be false? He says, well, you know, you really didn't lose much because, hey, you probably lived a moral life. You probably had a sense of purpose in your life. Uh, you probably were part of a church of people who loved you. Um, you probably you know, went through trials with a sense of hope and peace and joy, and granted it was all false, but hey, you got you through those things, so you really didn't lose much by being a Christian and then dying and then poof, nothing happens. He says, so that's one wager you can make. He says, look at the other wager, though. What if you chose atheism and it turned out to be false? What did you lose? And Pascal says, everything. You lose everything. And so Pascal's point is that the logical person, the rational person, the sane, common-sense person will lean strongly in the favor of faith if you really think of what's at stake. <clears throat> think of the dangers of not believing. In other words, I, I guess I'm saying don't just write it off with a sort of a one-liner, but take time to really wrestle with these things. Too much is at stake not to. And finally, let me just close by looking at the source of unbelief, which is verses 33 to 36. Where does unbelief come from? Is it really simply a paucity of evidence that drives one to unbelief? Or is there another explanation? What does Jesus say about it? And so we come to verses 33 to 36. Kind of a weird passage. This whole thing about lamp and the eye and the light coming in and then the darkness. And Maybe that made sense to you the first time you read it. When I read this the first time, I didn't get it. I had to read this and reread this and translate it and I wrestled with it. I just did not understand verses 33 to 36. I also didn't understand what it had to do with the whole thing about the sign of Jonah. So I, I really wrestled with putting all these things together. But I think it all does fit. So let me just explain what I think Jesus is saying. Uh, verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. So, all right, very simple. Here's a light. You put it on a stand. Everyone can see it. All right, we get it. Now comes the first analogy, verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. 
when your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But when your eyes, when they're bad, your body is also full of darkness. So in other words, light comes into the body through the eye. So in a sense, light comes in or we have images or vision because of our eyes. And if our eyes are healthy and clean, then we'll see the light. And if our eyes are bad or there's some health problem with our eyes, we're not going to be able to see that well. So there's kind of a metaphoric shift here. Then I think what makes this passage confusing is that then Jesus is taking that illustration about our physical eyes, which is kind of like a lamp, and he's going to a spiritual illustration. So do you see all, there's all these layers? I think that's why this is hard, to under, this is hard for me, because there's sort of, it's a metaphor of a metaphor. And so Jesus is saying that there's a spiritual sense in which our eyes work. In other words, look back at verse 34. Stay with me here, as I try to stay with myself. Yeah. He says, when your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light, but when they are bad, and I don't think he means unhealthy, because notice that, see that word bad? In Greek, it's the word paneros, which means evil or wicked, and it's the exact same word as back in verse 29, this is a wicked generation. So I don't think he's saying, I think what he's saying is, the reason this wicked generation isn't believing the miracles I'm showing is because they have wicked eyes. They have bad lenses. It's a sinful kind of lens. So the problem isn't a lack of evidence. The problem isn't a lack of proof. The problem is bad eyes. We have bad eyesight, spiritually speaking. But, you know, the problem with unbelief is it's more like being nearsighted or something. Our eyes just don't work. So that the light of God is out there shining, but for some reason it doesn't get in because our lenses are bad. And so what we need is not more data. What we need is new eyes. We need something to change in us, not to change in the amount of information that's accessible, but to change in the way we perceive it. We think seeing is believing, but Jesus is saying believing is seeing. It, it's by having something changed. And so really, I think he's, what he's talking about here is the, the biblical doctrine of depravity, that we are sinners. Not just that we commit sins, which we do. So I think when we think of sin, we think of actions like, I cheated on my taxes, I stole a candy bar, you know, I broke the speed limit which I guess in Massachusetts is not really a sin. Uh, it's sort of okay. But, uh, you know, I do these things. But what he's saying is that sin isn't just something I do. It's something that I am. I am in a condition of sin. And it affects the way I view everything. So even when the most obvious evidences are put out there, I still don't see it. That's why, I think that's why, really smart people who are really well-educated and are really thoughtful and articulate in most cases, can look at a laptop and say, wow, those guys did a good job building that. And then in the same breath, they can look under a microscope at a cell, which is so much smaller and so many more times complex. And they can say, wow, isn't that amazing how that randomly evolved from nothing by pure blind luck and, you know, accident. Like, what? If you're so smart, how can you be so dumb? Because it's not about IQ. It's not about data. It's about the lenses that we have. We all have a worldview. We all have a way of looking at life that we didn't come to scientifically. We just have it. We all have worldviews. And so it's about God giving us a new lens, a new interpretive worldview, changing our hearts, or to use biblical imagery to open the eyes of our heart, to change our heart of stone and concrete into a heart of flesh. To unplug our ears. That's the biblical kind of imagery. That God has to change all of those things for us. And so, unbelief is really an eyesight problem. It's not necessarily a data problem. Um, it's kind of like cataracts. Some of you have had cataract surgery. I guess it's the most common surgical procedure done today I was reading. 
Um, you know what a cataract is. It's when the lens of your eye uh, just deteriorates, typically from age, but sometimes for other reasons, and it becomes increasingly opaque and cloudy. And if it goes far enough, you eventually become blind because you know, your lens is totally covered over. And so they do cataract surgery, which is a really uh, cool thing where they, I, don't know, I guess they put some drops in your eye and cut a little slit and whoop, take out the bad lenses, whoop, put in new lenses, and then your eyes heal up and then you can see. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing what they can do. That's what God has to do for us. He has to take out the lenses of sin and put in lenses of faith. And it's something that God does supernaturally by His power because salvation comes from God. And so Jesus says in verse 35, See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Wait a minute, how can I see to it if God is the one who has to do it? I thought you just said God's the one who changes my eyes. How am I supposed to see to it? Well, it's our responsibility to call to God for salvation. We have to go to God and say, you know, God, not only do I need forgiveness for sins, but I need forgiveness for the fact that I am a sinner and my whole approach to life is one of blindness. I don't even believe. Even as I'm praying this, I don't even believe. <laughs> so God, I need you to save me, not just from my sins, but from being a sinner. You need to change me, Jesus. And the great promise we have from Jesus is that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You uh, like Peter, many of us, who said, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I confess that even as a Christian, even as a, a man who espouses Your Word, I have so many doubts. I have times I question You. I don't trust You. I disbelieve in so many ways. And Lord, I confess my unbelief and I pray that You'd continue to pour out Your Holy Spirit on us that we might be a more and more believing people. We know that we need Your grace in order to see that it's not just a little more data, but it's a whole new change of our being that you must accomplish. And so, Lord, accomplish it. Change our hearts. Make us born again by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can believe and see and see clearly. And, Lord, I do pray for anyone here who has genuine doubts and skepticism and questions. God, I just pray that you would speak to them so it wouldn't be some tricky argument the pastor used, but they would hear you speaking to their hearts. Lord, may they call out to you for cataract surgery of the heart, that they might be able to see clearly. And Lord, may you do it so that they would be able to say it was God who did it, not some worship service. And so Lord, be at work in our midst. And I pray that that we would be an open church to to questions. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be a a really dogmatic, closed-minded sort of place like cults become. But Lord, we'd be open to questions. Because Lord, if your word is truth, it can sustain inquiry. And so, Lord, I pray that our church would be a place where people with genuine questions and doubts can come and raise those doubts and not just be laughed out. Lord, keep us open-minded and trusting in You. So, Lord Jesus, show us more and more Your light. Fill us more and more with Your light every day so that we might not only understand the truth, but that we might live it, that we might be people who are holy and who display the glory of Christ in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, we're going to sing a song of invitation called Come Ye 